Section 11 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Celebrated Crimes, Volume 1 by Alexander Dumas. Translated by G. B. Ives. Section 11. The Borgias. Chapter 5. Part 3. The Pope arose with a joyful heart, for this oath, so publicly made, removed all his fears about a council, so inclined from this moment to yield to the King of France anything he might choose to ask, he took him by his left hand and made him a short and friendly reply, dubbing him the Church's eldest son. The ceremony over, they left the hall, the Pope always holding the King's hand in his and in this way they walked as far as the room where the sacred vestments are put off. The Pope feigned a wish to conduct the king to his own apartments, but the king would not suffer this, and, embracing once more, they separated, each to retire to his own domicile. The king remained eight days longer at the Vatican, then returned to the Palazzo San Marco. During these eight days all his demands were debated and settled to his satisfaction. The Bishop of Mons was made Cardinal, the investiture of the Kingdom of Naples was promised to the Conqueror. Lastly, it was agreed that on his departure the King of France should receive from the Pope's hand the brother of the Emperor of Constantinople for a sum of 120,000 livres. But the Pope, desiring to extend to the utmost the hospitality he had been bestowing, invited de Gem to dinner on the very day that he was to leave Rome with his new protector. When the moment of departure arrived, Charles mounted his horse in full armor, and with a numerous and brilliant following made his way to the Vatican. Arrived at the door, he dismounted, and leaving his escort at the piazza of St. Peter, went up with a few gentlemen only. He found His Holiness waiting for him, with Cardinal Valentino on his right, and on his left de Gem, who, as we said before, was dining with him, and round the table thirteen cardinals. The king at once, bending on his knee, demanded the pope's benediction, and stooped to kiss his feet. But this Alexander would not suffer. He took him in his arms, and with the lips of a father and heart of an enemy, kissed him tenderly on his forehead. Then the pope introduced the son of Mohammed II, who was a fine young man with something noble and regal in his air, presenting in his magnificent oriental costume a great contrast in its fashion and amplitude to the narrow, severe cut of the Christian apparel. De Gem advanced to Charles without humility and without pride, and, like an emperor's son treating with a king, kissed his hand and then his shoulder, and then, turning towards the Holy Father, he said in Italian, which he spoke very well, that he entreated he would recommend him to the young king, who was prepared to take him under his protection, assuring the pontiff that he should never have to repent giving him his liberty, and telling Charles that he hoped he might some day be proud of him if, after taking Naples, he carried out his intention of going on to Greece. These words were spoken with so much dignity, and at the same time with such gentleness, that the King of France loyally and frankly grasped the young Sultan's hand, as though he were his companion in arms. Then Charles took a final farewell of the Pope, and went down to the piazza. There he awaited Cardinal Valentino, 
who was about to accompany him, as we know, as a hostage, and who had remained behind to exchange a few words with his father. In a moment César Borgia appeared, riding on a splendidly harnessed mule, and behind him were led six magnificent horses, a present from the Holy Father to the King of France. Charles at once mounted one of these, to do honour to the gift the Pope had just conferred on him, and leaving Rome with the rest of his troops, pursued his way towards Marino, where he arrived the same evening. He learned there that Alfonso, belying his reputation as a clever politician and great general, had just embarked with all his treasures in a flotilla of four galleys, leaving the care of the war and the management of his kingdom to his son Ferdinand. Thus everything went well for the triumphant march of Charles. The gates of towns opened of themselves at his approach. His enemies fled without waiting for his coming, and before he had fought a single battle he had won for himself the surname of Conqueror. The day after, at dawn, the army started once more, and after marching the whole day, stopped in the evening at Folletri. There the king, who had been on horseback since the morning with Cardinal Valentino and de Gemme, left the former at his lodging, and taking de Gemme with him, went on to his own. Then César Borgia, who among the army baggage had twenty very heavy wagons of his own, had one of these opened, took out a splendid cabinet with the silver necessary for his table, and gave orders for his supper to be prepared as he had done the night before. Meanwhile night had come on, and he shut himself up in a private chamber, where, stripping off his cardinal's costume, he put on a groom's dress. Thanks to this disguise, he issued from the house that had been assigned for his accommodation without being recognized, traversed the streets, passed through the gates, and gained the open country. Nearly half a league outside the town, a servant awaited him with two swift horses. Cesar, who was an excellent rider, sprang to the saddle, and he and his companion at full gallop retraced the road to Rome, where they arrived at break of day. Cesar got down at the house of one Flores, auditor of the Rota, where he procured a fresh horse and suitable clothes. Then he flew at once to his mother, who gave a cry of joy when she saw him, for so silent and mysterious was the cardinal for all the world beside, and even for her, that he had not said a word of his early return to Rome. The cry of joy uttered by Rosa Venoza when she beheld her son was far more a cry of vengeance than of love. One evening, while everybody was at the rejoicings in the Vatican, when Charles the Eighth and Alexander the Sixth were swearing a friendship which neither of them felt, and exchanging oaths that were broken beforehand, a messenger from Rosa Venoza had arrived with a letter to Cesar, in which she begged him to come at once to her house in the Via della Longara. Cesar questioned the messenger, but he only replied that he could tell him nothing, that he would learn all he cared to know from his mother's own lips. So, as soon as he was at liberty, Cesar, in layman's dress and wrapped in a large cloak, quitted the Vatican and made his way towards the church of Regina Celi, in the neighborhood of which, it will be remembered, was the house where the Pope's mistress lived. As he approached his mother's house, Cesar began to observe the signs of strange devastation. The street was scattered with the wreck of furniture and strips of precious stuffs. As he arrived at the foot of the little flight of steps that led to the entrance gate, he saw that the windows were broken and the remains of torn curtains were fluttering in front of them. 
Not understanding what this disorder could mean, he rushed into the house and through several deserted and wrecked apartments. At last, seeing light in one of the rooms, he went in, and there he found his mother sitting on the remains of a chest made of ebony all inlaid with ivory and silver. When she saw Caesar, she rose, pale and disheveled, and pointing to the desolation around her, exclaimed, "'Look, Caesar, behold the work of your new friends!' "'But what does it mean?' mother asked the cardinal. "'Whence comes all this disorder?' "'From the serpent,' replied Rosa Venoza, gnashing her teeth. "'From the serpent you have warmed in your bosom. "'He has bitten me.' fearing no doubt that his teeth would be broken on you. "'Who has done this?' cried Caesar. "'Tell me, and by heaven, mother, he shall pay, and pay indeed.' "'Who?' replied Rosa. "'King Charles the Eighth has done it, by the hands of his faithful allies, the Swiss.' "'It was well known that Melchior was away, and that I was living alone with a few wretched servants. So they came and broke in the doors, as though they were taking Rome by storm.' and while Cardinal Valentino was making holiday with their master, they pillaged his mother's house, loading her with insults and outrages which no Turks or Saracens could possibly have improved upon. "'Very good, mother, very good,' said Cesar. "'Be calm. Blood shall wash out disgrace. "'Consider a moment. What we have lost is nothing compared with what we might lose. "'And my father and I, you may be quite sure, will give you back more than they have stolen from you.' "'I ask for no promises,' cried Rosa. "'I ask for revenge.' "'My mother,' said the cardinal, "'you shall be avenged, or I will lose the name of son.' Having by these words reassured his mother, he took her to Lucrezia's palace, which in consequence of her marriage with Pizarro was unoccupied, and himself returned to the Vatican, giving orders that his mother's house should be refurnished more magnificently than before the disaster.' These orders were punctually executed, and it was among her new luxurious surroundings, but with the same hatred in her heart, that Cesar on this occasion found his mother. This feeling prompted her cry of joy when she saw him once more. The mother and son exchanged a very few words. Then Cesar, mounting on horseback, went to the Vatican, whence as a hostage he had departed two days before. Alexander, who knew of the flight beforehand, and not only approved, but as sovereign pontiff had previously absolved his son of the perjury he was about to commit, received him joyfully, but all the same advised him to lie concealed, as Charles in all probability would not be slow to reclaim his hostage. Indeed, the next day when the king got up, the absence of Cardinal Valentino was observed, and as Charles was uneasy at not seeing him, he sent to inquire what had prevented his appearance. When the messenger arrived at the house that Cesar had left the evening before, he learned that he had gone out at nine o'clock in the evening and had not returned since. He went back with this news to the king, who at once suspected that he had fled, and in the first flush of his anger let the whole army know of his perjury. The soldiers then remembered the twenty wagons, so heavily laden, from one of which the cardinal, in the sight of all, had produced such magnificent gold and silver plate, and never doubting that the cargo of the others was equally precious, they fetched them down and broke them to pieces. But inside they found nothing but stones and sand, which proved to the king that the flight had been planned a long time back, and incensed him doubly against the pope. 
So without loss of time he dispatched to Rome Philippe de Bresse, afterwards Duke of Savoy, with orders to intimate to the Holy Father his displeasure at this conduct. But the Pope replied that he knew nothing whatever about his son's flight, and expressed the sincerest regret to his majesty, declaring that he knew nothing of his whereabouts, but was certain that he was not in Rome. As a fact, the Pope was speaking the truth this time, for Caesar had gone with Cardinal Orsini to one of his estates, and was temporarily in hiding there. This reply was conveyed to Charles by two messengers from the Pope, the bishops of Napi and Sutri, and the people also sent an ambassador in their own behalf. He was Monsignori Porcari, Dean of the Rota, who was charged to communicate to the King the displeasure of the Romans when they learned of the Cardinal's breach of faith. Little as Charles was disposed to content himself with empty words, he had to turn his attention to more serious affairs. So he continued his march to Naples without stopping, arriving there on Sunday, the 22nd of February, 1495. Four days later, the unlucky de Gem, who had fallen sick at Capua, died at Castel Nuovo. When he was leaving at the farewell banquet, Alexander had tried on his guest the poison he intended to use so often later on upon his cardinals, and whose effects he was destined to feel himself, such as poetical justice. In this way the Pope had secured a double haul, for, in his twofold speculation in this wretched young man, he had sold him alive to Charles for 120,000 livres, and sold him dead to Bajazet for 300,000 ducats. But there was a certain delay about the second payment, for the Turkish emperor, as we remember, was not bound to pay the price of fratricide till he received the corpse, and by Charles's order the corpse had been buried at Gaeta. When César Borgia learned the news, he rightly supposed that the king would be so busy settling himself in his new capital that he would have too much to think of to be worrying about him. So he went to Rome again, and, anxious to keep his promise to his mother, he signaled his return by a terrible vengeance. Cardinal Valentino had in his service a certain Spaniard, whom he had made the chief of his bravos. He was a man of five-and-thirty or forty, whose whole life had been one long rebellion against society's laws. He recoiled from no action, provided only that he could get his price. This Don Michele Correglia, who earned his celebrity for bloody deeds under the name of Michelotto, was just the man Cesar wanted. And whereas Michelotto felt an unbounded admiration for Cesar, Cesar had unlimited confidence in Michelotto. It was to him the cardinal entrusted the execution of one part of his vengeance, the other he kept for himself. Don Michele received orders to scour the Campagna and cut every French throat he could find. He began his work at once, and very few days elapsed before he had obtained most satisfactory results. More than a hundred persons were robbed or assassinated, and among the last, the son of Cardinal de Saint-Malo, who was on his way back to France, and on whom Michelotto found a sum of three thousand crowns. For himself, César reserved the Swiss, for it was the Swiss in particular who had despoiled his mother's house. The Pope had in his service about a hundred and fifty soldiers belonging to their nation, who had settled their families in Rome, and had grown rich partly by their pay and partly in the exercise of various industries. 
The cardinal had every one of them dismissed, with orders to quit Rome within twenty-four hours, and the Roman territories within three days. The poor wretches had all collected together to obey the order, with their wives and children and baggage, on the piazza of St. Peter, when suddenly, by Cardinal Valentino's orders, they were hemmed in on all sides by two thousand Spaniards, who began to fire on them with their guns, and charge them with their sabres, while Caesar and his mother looked down upon the carnage from a window. In this way they killed fifty or perhaps sixty, but the rest coming up made a charge at the assassins, and then, without suffering any loss, managed to beat a retreat to a house where they stood a siege, and made so valiant a defence that they gave the Pope time, he knew nothing of the author of this butchery, to send a captain of his guard to the rescue, who, with a strong detachment, succeeded in getting nearly forty of them safely out of the town. The rest had been massacred on the piazza, or killed in the house. But this was no real and adequate revenge, for it did not touch Charles himself, the sole author of all the troubles that the Pope and his family had experienced during the last year. So Caesar soon abandoned vulgar schemes of this kind, and busied himself with loftier concerns, bending all the force of his genius to restore the League of Italian Princes that had been broken by the defection of Sforza, the exile of Piero dei Medici, and the defeat of Alfonso. The enterprise was more easily accomplished than the Pope could have anticipated. The Venetians were very uneasy when Charles passed so near, and they trembled lest, when he was once master of Naples, he might conceive the idea of conquering the rest of Italy. Ludovico Sforza, on his side, was beginning to tremble, seeing the rapidity with which the King of France had dethroned the House of Aragon, lest he might not make much difference between his allies and his enemies. Maximilian, for his part, was only seeking an occasion to break the temporary peace which he had granted for the sake of the concession made to him. Lastly, Ferdinand and Isabella were allies of the dethroned house. And so it came about that all of them, for different reasons, felt a common fear, and were soon in agreement as to the necessity of driving out Charles the Eighth, not only from Naples, but from Italy and pledged themselves to work together to this end by every means in their power, by negotiations, by trickery, or by actual force. The Florentines alone refused to take part in this general levy of arms, and remained faithful to their promises. According to the articles of the treaty agreed upon by the Confederates, the alliance was to last for five-and-twenty years, and had for ostensible object the upholding of the majority of the Pope and the interests of Christendom. And these preparations might well have been taken for such as would proceed a crusade against the Turks, if Bajazet's ambassadors had not always been present at the deliberations, although the Christian princes could not have dared for very shame to admit the Sultan by name into their league. Now the Confederates had to set on foot an army of 30,000 horse and 20,000 infantry, and each of them was taxed for a contingent. Thus the Pope was to furnish 4,000 horse, Maximilian 6,000, the King of Spain, the Duke of Milan, and the Republic of Venice 8,000 each. Every Confederate was, in addition to this, to levy and equip 4,000 infantry in the six weeks following the signature of the treaty. The fleets were to be equipped by the maritime states, but any expenses they should incur later on were to be defrayed by all in equal shares. 
The formation of this league was made public on the 12th of April, 1495, Palm Sunday, and in all the Italian states, especially at Rome, was made the occasion of fates and immense rejoicings. Almost as soon as the publicly known articles were announced, the secret ones were put into execution. These obliged Ferdinand and Isabella to send a fleet of sixty galleys to Ischia, where Alfonso's son had retired, with six hundred horsemen on board and five thousand infantry, to help him to ascend the throne once more. Those troops were to be put under the command of Gonzalvo of Cordova, who had gained the reputation of the greatest general in Europe after the taking of Granada. The Venetians, with a fleet of forty galleys under the command of Antonio Grimani, were to attack all the French stations on the coast of Calabria and Naples. The Duke of Milan promised for his part to check all reinforcements as they should arrive from France, and to drive the Duke of Orleans out of Asti. Lastly, there was Maximilian, who had promised to make invasions on the frontiers, and Bajazet, who was to help with money, ships, and soldiers, either the Venetians or the Spaniards, according as he might be appealed to by Barbarigo or by Ferdinand the Catholic. This league was all the more disconcerting for Charles, because of the speedy abatement of the enthusiasm that had hailed his first appearance. What had happened to him was what generally happens to a conqueror who has more good luck than talent. Instead of making himself a party among the great Neapolitan and Calabrian vassals, whose roots would be embedded in the very soil, by confirming their privileges and augmenting their power, he had wounded their feelings by bestowing all the titles, offices, and fiefs on those alone who had followed him from France, so that all the important positions in the kingdom were filled by strangers. The result was that just when the League was made known, Tropea and Amantea, which had been presented by Charles to the Seigneur de Pressy, rose in revolt and hoisted the banner of Aragon, and the Spanish fleet had only to present itself at Reggio in Calabria for the town to throw open its gates, being more discontented with the new rule than the old. And Don Federigo, Alfonso's brother and Ferdinand's uncle, who had hitherto never quitted Brindisi, had only to appear at Tarentum to be received there as a liberator. End of section 11